0: well done excellent and the idea is every week to have different people reading that for us we are in a, a series on the creed uh, written in the fourth century uh, the earliest or one of the earliest unifying statements of what christians believe around the world uh, no matter what denomination or stripe they may be uh, if if you don't acknowledge this Whatever else you may be, you're not a Christian. And so we're celebrating the unity of the Christian faith and the things that we believe by looking at that together. Um, Have you noticed that there's no stage at the back of the, the church hall this morning? Yes. Every every month we like to keep you on your toes. Um, welcome to our building site and our work in progress. Soon we will be some big screens or a projector to see on the wall rather than having to go, what does it say on the telly? What is the words? So soon we're, we're moving things along and the guys are doing a great job. Actually um, related to the creed in a loose, tenuous sort of way. Um, the creed sometimes is, is called a vocabulary for faith and in every, organisation or place you go, there'll be a particular vocabulary that's needed in order to feel at home there and this past week I was in, I've been in lots of buildings meetings about this place uh, with various people and this past week I was with Vince again who's talking about what we're doing and to be honest using words and vocabulary that I have no idea about and talking to the guys dropping off the stuff and asking me to order stuff on the phone and I handed him the phone to order it because I'm not familiar with that world and me and Sean often just sit there in these meetings looking at each other just shrugging going, this is a language we don't understand we just paint pictures or read books. I speak for, I speak for myself so I shouldn't lump Sean into that category he fixes cars for a living or for a hobby. But that's Sean. Um, Okay, now John Calvin famously said that without a knowledge of God, there is no knowledge of self. And we are a people who have been brought up on the importance of knowing yourself. We do tests and personality profiles in order to discover just who you are, who we are. But without knowledge of God, there is no knowledge of self. And today we're exploring the question, who is Jesus and why does it matter? It's a question that is of huge importance. Essentially, it's a question that the creed answers for us, who we are and why we're here. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father, through him all things were made. Now it's a statement that contains some fairly technical concepts and words and it presents a cosmic vision of Jesus unlike the one that many of us are familiar with or many a vision of Jesus unlike the one many people, particularly if they're not familiar with Christianity, are aware of. For most people when they think of Jesus, they picture this probably, this. Are we able to move it along, Shayla? Oh, oh no, wait, that's Jason. <laughs> ah, I'm not quite sure how that got there. Next slide. This, there we go. Jason's not even here to fight for himself, bless him. We picture Jesus perhaps like that. In fact, every culture around the world seems to, at various times, picture Jesus as basically a version of themselves. If we go to this next slide, Images of Jesus from art depicted as a Chinese man, a black African, a a white European and everything else around that is Jesus. So first what's needed perhaps in order to reconfigure how we think of Jesus, I want us to start this morning by soaking and marinating in what the Bible has to say about him. We're gonna look at several chunks of the Bible together and we're gonna allow its juices to get under our skins and make us tastier, because that's what you do when you marinate food. So firstly, John 1, verse. we've heard some of it this morning, John 1, 1 to 5 and then verse 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And the words became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then in Hebrews chapter one, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would also have known my Father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say show us the Father? Then in John 10 verse 30 Jesus says I and the Father are one and in Colossians chapter 1 the Apostle Paul writes to the church Jesus is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Tasty, isn't it? Do you feel well marinated and juicy? Or maybe just a little bit confused by some of the ideas and the concepts. Maybe it's a wash of words that leaves you thinking, nice, but what does it mean? The Bible passages we read present a somewhat cosmic image of Jesus, different from the one that's common in people's minds. Consider this image of Jesus, drawn from the picture of him in the book of Revelation um, that describes Jesus as having eyes like fire, feet like bronze, and from his mouth comes a sound like the crashing of many waters. From these Bible passages and from the Creed, it's fair to say that Jesus is considered to be so much more than just A wandering guru or a teacher or someone who taught people about love and forgiveness. Jesus is some some of those things that he said about himself make it clear that that isn't how he viewed himself. Jesus said I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. He doesn't say I am a way to ultimate reality or I am a truth among many of your postmodern truths. He says I am the way, the truth, and he doesn't say, I can show you how to live a good life. He says, I am life itself. So who is Jesus? What are we to make of him? Now some of the words in the creeds are not words that we use in everyday speech. When a woman discovers that she's pregnant, she doesn't go into the midwife's office and tell her in delighted tones, I am begetting, I am begetting. But that's what she means, I am begetting. Jesus is begotten of the Father we read, meaning that he is of the same substance and nature as God the Father is. Jason, who appeared on our screen earlier, he made those benches out there. Now Jason can make a table or a bench but he begets a son. The difference is perhaps clearer when you consider that the Bible says that Jesus is God's only begotten son. It also says that if you as a As a human being put your faith and trust in Jesus, you become an adopted son or daughter of God. You are a son of God, an adopted son, but you're not a begotten son. Only Jesus is the Father's begotten son with a nature exactly like that of the Father. Jesus is of the same substance as God, meaning that there was never a time when Jesus wasn't. Meaning that he has always been the Son of the Father and that he always will be. And this idea is really significant and important. You see, in trying to answer the question, who is Jesus, it leads us to another question. What is God? What is he like? How do we know? How can we say anything meaningful about God with confidence? You see, most people would admit that there is a possibility or even a strong possibility that God exists. But if he exists, what is he or it? Who's to say what God's like? Maybe God is an elephant God or something else. Uh, There's a moment in a popular film from the 90s where it's revealed that God is in fact the singer-songwriter Alanis Morissette, if you've seen the film. Maybe God is Alanis Morissette, who's to say? Maybe God isn't a he, maybe he's a she. Or perhaps God is the planet that we live on. Maybe you're God and I'm God and everything we see around us is God. It matters because who or what are we to address our prayers to? Should we expect an answer to those prayers? What kind of a mood is God God in? Is God a friend of the human race or is he a foe? How do you know? How can you answer questions like that? And those questions really matter for life. Often when things go wrong in a person's life or when we're full of confusion, we are tempted to blame God. Even if we don't believe in God, we blame him. People say, if there's a God, why is there so much suffering, unnecessary suffering in the world? Which is a really good question. And it's a valid question. And the answers to those questions, that question aren't glib answers or easy answers. But the question presupposes or it assumes that God is or ought to be interested in us in the first place. It presupposes that God cares to even have a problem with him in the first place. I mean, what makes you think that God cares about you or about me? Why should he? What is there about you or us that makes us anything special at all in the first place? Haven't you heard how big the universe is? The scientists describe it to us. We are just a tiny, infinitesimally small part of this gigantic universe. What makes you think you matter? Or that your life is of any significance? There's no God, there's no help. Get on with your life and stop wishing the universe was different from it. But if there is a God, then there may be help. But it depends, depends on what kind of God he is. That's why this question from the creed really matters. See, it's for this reason and more that the question, what's God like? It's for this reason that the Nicene Creed was created. And perhaps more importantly, it's for this reason that the original Santa Claus got stuck in a prison cell. Let me explain. So way back in the early 300s AD, Christianity had spread across the Roman Empire. Here's a picture of the Roman Empire as it was in those days, divided into two. The emperor at the time, Constantine, fought a battle, wins a battle, and manages as a result to unite the empire under him again, under one rule. The Roman Empire became one. Then, next, for the first time in Christian history, the emperor issues a decree that Christianity is no longer to be outlawed. It is no longer illegal to be a Christian. For the first time in its history, Christians are allowed to Worship in public and in freedom without fear of being thrown to the lions. But then one of the next things that Constantine does is he gathers all of the major leaders in the church together from all over the empire. And he he calls them together to agree formally and officially on exactly what the core teachings and beliefs of the Christian religion are all about. And a major reason for him doing that and calling people together was because of what was going on in North Egypt down there in Alexandria, where there was a significant church. Q. Arius, this man from church history. Arius was a bishop in the church in Egypt. He was a very clever man and he was, he was well loved by lots of people. In fact, it was said of Arius He was tall and lean, of distinguished appearance and polished address. Women doted on him, charmed by his beautiful manners, touched by his appearance of holiness. This is a picture of him. Easy, ladies. (laughs) Arius was saying that Jesus was God's son, but not God. He said that there was once a time when God was without Jesus and that he created Jesus in order for Jesus to then create and manage the world run it on his behalf now that wasn't what Christians had been saying for the past 300 years and so it unsettled people but due to his charm and brilliance many people were convinced by Arius and were led away led astray by him enter stage right a man named Athanasius we'll call him Ath because it sounds cooler now Ath was equally brilliant he was a deacon in the church rather than a bishop and he stood up to some of the nonsense that Arius was saying and he challenged him on it. But you see, at one time, so many people had become convinced by Arius. that people began saying to Athanasius, they said, Ath, They said, give it up. The whole world is against you, Athanasius. You're just going to have to give up these early beliefs that the Christians held and that you held. And that's where Athanasius' his motto came up. Athanasius is a man who had a motto, which for me is, is a clear indication that church history is never dull. People had mottos in those days. And his motto, rather like a Twitter handle in these days, minus the hashtag, his motto was, and it was in Latin, which makes him even cooler, his motto was Athanasius Contramundum. Ooh. Athanasius Contramundum, which is cool because it's in Latin, but also because of what it means. It means this. Athanasius against the world. Oh, I like this guy already. You see, when people said to him, Ath, give it up, the whole world is against you. That's when he, he did his Pumba from the Lion King speech. He said, if the whole world is against Athanasius, then it is Athanasius against the world. And then he just dropped the microphone and walked <laughs> off the stage. You see, Athanasius was so committed to truth he was willing to take his stand and become unpopular for it. But he wasn't alone in how he felt. And that's where Santa Claus comes in. Remember him? That's where we started with this whole foray into ancient history. Now, the emperor called this gathering together of all the world's church leaders and basically said to them, look, sort this out once and for all. Um, and so they, they sat there, all of the leaders in this room, and they discussed things for hours and each in turn gave their speech. And Arius stood up and gave his speech about why he thinks it is that Jesus is not eternal but was created and why that matters. Well this infuriated Santa Claus or Saint Nicholas as he was then, uh, it infuriated him so much that he stood up and he walked across the gathering and he slapped Arius in the face. Which got him arrested and thrown into prison for a night. Um, he's our hero, St. Nicholas. Before mothers told their sons and daughters stories of him, you know, his, his belly, what is this phrase? His belly rumbling with like a bowl full of jelly. Before all of that, it was he slapped Arius in the face. And actually, in this uh, monastery here in Turkey, there's a, a picture of the scene on the fresco here. There's St. Nick slapping him across the face. Now, you would be forgiven for thinking, So what? Religious people behave appallingly all the time. Is this just another example? Why does it matter whether or not Jesus was eternally God or was just created by God as the Son of God? What's the difference? Isn't this just another example of theological hair splitting or of nonsensical mustache twiddling? No, it isn't. Now, if you zoned out during the history lesson, come back in because this next bit really matters. If there was ever a time when God was without Jesus, if there was ever a time when God wasn't Father, Son and Holy Spirit, if there was ever a time when God was without the Son, then what we have at the origin of all things, before anything was made, what we have is a very different God to the God Christians believe in. In actual fact most people Often in the church, but certainly outside the church, when you ask them to describe what God is like, they can do so. And they say He's Almighty, He's powerful, He's the creator. And Christians would agree, but they'll never get close to a God like the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God of the Bible, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You see, if if God created the Son, And and there was a time when God was without the son. Then when you drill down to God at his furthest and purest part, God isn't father. He might be powerful, he might be ruler. Although you can't rule a creation you haven't made yet. So you're not a ruler until you create something to rule over, but you're powerful, you're awesome, you're impressive, you're strong, you're mighty. But you're not father. It means that God was once on his own. And on his own, it means that God wasn't always loving. He wasn't always love. Because to be love is to have something to love. To be on your own is perhaps to be lonely. What it means, if God is like that, it means that God created the Son and that God is potentially quite different from the Son. And the Son might be able to tell us about God, Jesus might be able to tell us about God, but we would have very little confidence that the Son was actually very similar to the Father. We just have to take his word for it. We read, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. We read at the start, those words and when those words were first written a rev- nothing short of a revolution occurred in people's understandings of how clearly they could think of and conceive of and relate to God you see if this is true then it also means something about ultimate reality ultimate reality if God is father son and spirit eternally one God three persons each person fully God If God is eternally Father, Son, and Spirit, what that means is the ultimate reality, when everything else is stripped away, ultimate reality is still personal, not impersonal. If God is an interpersonal being who communicates and loves, and if we are made in some small way like him, then you'd expect us to also be interpersonal beings who relate to one another. What that means is that relationships and love and commitments and responsibilities are a major part of what ultimately it means to be human. Who you are, who I am, can only properly be understood in relation to other people and in relation to God. I've had long conversations recently with some dear friends who believe that everything is one. Quite a a typical materialist position or Buddhist position. Everything is one. That you are God, I am God, the universe is God. And what's and the problem with the world is the illusion of difference. That we look different, but we're actually one. And salvation is found in realizing that we're not different, we're all one. It's a very different picture of reality. In that picture of things, a major cause of suffering in the world is love. Because to love something as distinct from yourself is to not understand that that something is you. It's to desire things that are different from the way the universe treats you because you are cast under the spell of diversity, the illusion of diversity, which may be a little bit much for a Sunday morning. But ultimate reality is both diverse Father, Son, and Spirit, and one, there is one God. Which means to flourish as a human being is to understand who you are, not as a distinct, ultimate, isolated island entity, but to understand who you are in relation to the people in your life. It is not weak or wrong to be dependent on others, to be committed to others, to be loyal to others, It is a reflection of what God is like and of what we're made to mirror. That's what John Calvin meant when he said without knowledge of God, there's no true knowledge of self. You cannot discover who you are apart from the people in your life. Since ultimate reality, God is a personal being. It's not what you do that defines who you are. And that's often how we talk. I'm an accountant, I'm an investment banker, or I'm an insurance broker. Who you are is best understood by the persons you relate to. I'm a father, I'm a mum to these monsters, I'm a nanny, I'm a friend to these people, I'm a husband, I'm a wife, I'm a part of this church. These are my brothers and sisters. I'm a member of this community, I'm a disciple of Jesus. So Jesus is eternally begotten of the Father and that's why it matters. He is God from God, light from light. Let me give us a couple of quick illustrations on this. Um, Let me put this image on the screen. What is this? Thank you John, it's a pond, it's very good. The rest of you can play the next time. This is a pond. What's this? Fountain, Fountain. excellent. And this one? Pond, and this one? You're You're getting into the swing of it. I can tell, well done. We've got you back from the throes of ancient history. And this one? Oh, interesting. No, it is just a pond, because there's no water coming out. You turn off the water, and it is no longer a fountain. Now, you might think, silly. But I have a point. A fountain is only a fountain when it's overflowing. Otherwise, it is just a pond. I like fountains. I like ponds. Which one's better? There's only one way to find out. Make them fight. <laughs> what is God? Is God a pond or is God a fountain? Well, if God is Father, then a Father, by definition, is someone who gives life to another. If all my kids died, um, I would no longer be a father. I would just be a man. But all the while they're alive, I'm a father. God is and always has been Father, Son and Spirit. What that means is that he has always been overflowing and giving life. There's never a time, even before the creation began, there's never a time where God was not overflowing from himself into other people in the Godhead. Next, consider a spotlight. Um, We haven't got particularly strong ones here, but you you have a spotlight, a lamp, and then you have the image on the floor, say. The light is over there, but the light it creates is over here. The light is of the same substance as the lamp, but is distinct from it, and yet cannot exist without it. Jesus is eternally begotten of the Father. He is God from God, light from God. Or as we read from the book of Hebrews, he is the radiance of the glory of God, which is a kind of, a linguistic way of trying to untangle something. The word "glory means shiny and majestic. Or ra- the word "radiance." Jesus is the, the radiance of the glory of God. Glory, shiny, majestic. Radiance? shiny, majestic. Jesus is the overflowing majesty of the majestic one. He's the overflowing radiance of the radiant one. Last one. Oh, steady on. What have you done? Okay. Um, Time for a song. (laughs) So, I have the string and I have the noise. I pluck the string, the noise emanates out into the room. I stop the string, the vibrating stops, the noise stops. The note is distinct from the string, and yet it is of the essence of the string, the same essence as the string. That's as far as I go, John. Scientists tell us that the universe is expanding. What if that expansion was essentially the voice of the Word of God filling out into the outer reaches of things, constantly moving outward. What the Bible tells us is that that Word, that noise, that voice that comes from God is distinct from God, but it is incarnated in the person of Jesus. The, The voice, the Word of God is personal. Again, this really matters for thinking about what God's like, but really matters for considering ultimate reality. Again, many of my friends who aren't believers who hold that the the universe is one rather than three in one, for them, God is silent, waiting to be discovered by you. Not so for the Christian. For us, we see in Jesus someone who isn't silent, but is speaking all the time and is drawing people to himself. And listen to what the author Michael Reeves says. He says for millennia the human imagination has groped and guessed peering into the darkness. And in that darkness it has dreamed of dreadful gods and goddesses of devils and powers of space and ultimate nothingness. Staggered by immensity We are left terrified of what might be. If there is a God behind it all, what is he like? Jesus. That is the Christian answer. He is like Jesus. There is no God in heaven unlike Jesus. There is no God in heaven hiding behind Jesus' back, the terrifying Father who's going to come and smite the world. Ultimate reality is not an idea or a theory. It's not a technique for life or a play on words. At the center of it all is a person. At the center of our faith is the person of Jesus and our faith centers on a personal attachment to him. Seeing him and understanding his significance, his beauty, his glory is the Christian life and it is what will hold us throughout life, through sickness and redundancy and betrayal and even death, holding on to and beholding Jesus. Jesus is God with skin on. He is God in human form. He is the ultimate and final word on what God is like. That is who Jesus is and that's why it matters. The Apostle Paul says, Christ, he writes to a church, he says, Christ is my life. And elsewhere, he wrote, for me to live is Christ. And then again, he says, I consider everything else in my life that used to be of gain, now as loss compared to the outstanding greatness of knowing Jesus, my Lord. See, Jesus is more than an historical figure, more than a good moral teacher. Jesus is alive and among us. He is eternally and always God the Son. He's the ruler of all and the one through whom all things exist. And every time you take a breath, it is because Jesus is upholding the universe by the word of his power. He upholds it actively at work and involved in everything. And if he was for a moment to take his hand away, everything Would come undone. Chaos would return. The plagues of Egypt and some would return. Listen to the advice that Robert Murray McShane once wrote to a friend in the 19th century. He said, learn much of the Lord Jesus and for every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely. Such infinite majesty, and yet such meekness and grace, and all for sinners, all for those who've messed up, even for the chief of sinners. Live much in the smiles of God, he wrote, bask in his beams, feel his all-seeing eye settled on you in love, and rest in his almighty arms. Let your soul be filled with a heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and excellency of Christ and all that is in Him. See, Christianity is about wild and passionate obsession. It is about leaving everything, giving it all up, to find the one who offers much more than life itself, who is life To know Jesus and to live with him throughout all the rhythms and seasons of life. That's Christianity. It involves a devotion to Jesus far greater than the devotion of a husband to a wife or even a mother to a child or even a devotion to our countries. Being a Christian comes first. And it has little to do with a set of rules or regulations of do's and don'ts. It's about knowing the one who made you, of knowing that he's in charge of you, knowing that he can help, knowing that he makes beautiful things out of the dust and the rubbish dumps of the world. God is eternally loving and good and that we see him most clearly in the spotlight of Jesus Christ. What this means that when Jesus was telling off religious people, as he often did, when he was telling them off for being hypocritical, it was God telling them off. That's how God feels about religious people and dead religion. When Jesus was preferring the poor and the overlooked in his society, that was God preferring the poor and the overlooked in his society. When Jesus called people to give up everything and to follow him in order to find themselves There was God inviting people to come to him and have life. It also means that when Jesus was on the cross, naked and bloodied, dying for the sins of the world to offer forgiveness from guilt and freedom from shame, that was God on the cross. God offering peace to the world. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally Begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. He was begotten, not made, of one being with the Father, and through him all things were made. And that's why it matters. Let's pray.